Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be working our way through the first 13 verses today. I've always considered myself to be a positive person. I can usually find the glass half full perspective in most situations. When I was cut from JV basketball at Jones County High School in 2005, I was excited to have a head start on conditioning for baseball. When I fell short of the GPA requirements for the mass communications program at Georgia College, I decided a business degree would open more doors and provide more career opportunities for me. And when I was fairly certain about a long-term stay in the friend zone with my future wife, I embraced the challenge of turning her apathy into affection. And eventually I did, because I only get better with time. So church, if, if you don't take a lot away from this first sermon, please hear that, that I only get better with time. But I generally operate on the sunny side of things. But a few weeks ago, I found myself in unfamiliar territory. After preaching in view of a call here at Charity on Memorial Day weekend, we were relieved and and overjoyed to officially be part of the family. And we quickly started the process of preparing to move our little family to Lowndes County. Over the next few days, we were extremely busy. We started purging our possessions. We began packing up our home, and we put in an offer on a house in close proximity to the church. And during the chaos of the week, I never really slowed down to process all of the change. I never really slowed down to process what would be coming on the horizon. I didn't consider the ramifications of changing positions and changing houses and changing towns. I didn't think about the different pressure obtained from shifting from student ministry to the pastorate. And then, at the end of the week, on Saturday night, about 9 p.m., I started thinking about it. I had every fear, every doubt, every worry start creeping into my mind. I heard a voice whispering in my ear, you can't do it. You're too young, you're too inexperienced, you're going to fail, you're going to blow it. You'll let everyone down. And in these moments, as my anxiety rose to a fever pitch, I became physically ill. And for the next 48 hours, I continued to wrestle with it. I continued to struggle with it. I constantly prayed for peace, but I couldn't find it. And as these things usually go, I was scheduled two days later to take 57 students and leaders to my final summer camp with First Baptist. On that Monday morning, we loaded up a caravan of vehicles and headed to Charleston, South Carolina. As we hit the road, I was still restless. I was still struggling, but I was hopeful that a few days away would be good for me. That a few days away to focus solely on the Lord would help me find peace. But the peace I was looking for was not found on Monday. On Monday, I found the opposite of peace. Because on the way to camp, we had a nail in one tire, we had a blowout in another tire, we had a student get sick, and we had an SUV breakdown. For part of our group, a four-hour trip turned into a ten-hour journey. 
And so I arrived in Charleston exhausted and spent, but determined to keep pushing forward. And throughout the week, I kept having John 12, 32 come to my mind. Where Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And every time I revisited those words, as I was considering my future, my burden became lighter and lighter. And I was far from 100% during camp. I was sick, I was tired, I was overwhelmed, but God continued to work. God continued to work, and I watched six students make salvation decisions over those five days. And I became keenly aware of an essential truth about my ministry calling. It's not about anything I can do. It's not about anything I can say. It's not about any way that I can lead. It's about what Christ has already done. It's about everything Christ has already done. And that weekend, and that following week, served as a reminder to me that I am merely a nobody who has been called to tell everybody about somebody. So this morning I stand before you with that burden lifted, and I want to do what I plan to do every single time I stand behind this pulpit. I want to point you to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And I want to start by preaching through the Gospel of John. Because if John had to summarize his Gospel into a thesis statement, he probably already did it in chapter 20. If you look at verses 30 and 31 in chapter 20, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote about his experiences with Jesus so that we would believe in him and have life through him. And so as we start working our way through the Gospel of John, I want us to, to find our confidence in the promises of John twelve thirty two. I want us to start and believe that if, if we lift Jesus from this pulpit, if we lift him up in this pulpit, if we lift him up in this building, if we lift him up in our circles of influence, he will draw people to himself. And if we come into these Sunday morning gatherings with open hearts and open minds, prepared to hear from him, we will see the saved have their faith renewed and the lost see the light of the gospel for the first time. And so this morning we start with the prologue. The prologue makes up the first 18 verses of the gospel. And John lays out a number of important foundational thoughts about Jesus. And we're going to revisit a few of these ideas over and over again as we work our way through the rest of the book. But this morning we're going to focus on the first of two major themes. John has two major themes in the prologue. The first is that the Word is God. That's where we'll be this week. The second is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's where we're going next week. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 5 together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So throughout Scripture, over and over again, we see clear testimony that Jesus of Nazareth was more than a good man, a moral example, or a wise rabbi. In chapter 1, verse 1, John wants to make it clear that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is divine. Verse 1 ends with the phrase, the word was God. This simple phrase is an earth-shaking theological idea for first century Jews. That Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus the carpenter is God. Now before we unpack the significance of this statement, let's circle back to John's decision to refer to Jesus as the Word. Now while the title is certainly unique, we can follow John's thought process here. We understand the significance of our words. We know words are powerful. We know words can be used to build up or tear down. That words can inspire or discourage. That words can affect change positively or negatively. During World War II, Winston Churchill used words to rally the English after the fall of France. He gave a rousing, famous speech in the House of Commons where he said to his hearers, Let us therefore brace ourselves to the duties to our duties, and so bear ourselves that the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And those words inspired, rallied, and emboldened the English to stay the course, to dig their heels in, to stand strong against the enemy, to keep fighting. And while Churchill's words are an example of our words being powerful in a moment, our words are no match for the power of the Word of God. Human words cannot compare to God's Word because both salvation and creation come through the Word. Psalm 33 proclaims, The heavens were made by the Word of the Lord. Psalm 107 declares, God sent His Son and healed them. He rescued them from the pit. So John calls Jesus the Word because He came to saving faith through the ministry of the Word. When Jesus performed miracles, He saw the power of God. When Jesus preached sermons, He heard the truth of God. When Jesus laid down His life on Calvary, He experienced the love of God. For John... The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus served as a decisive and clear picture of the gospel. And so when John finally sat down to write his biography of Jesus, after spending years reflecting on all the truth, the glory, the light, and the words, after considering all the ways Jesus revealed God's mind, expressed God's will, displayed God's perfection, and exposed God's heart, John summed it all up in one name the word jesus is the final absolute perfect true and reliable word of god when the author of hebrews starts his book he says something similar he says long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son the son of god taking on flesh and dwelling among us is the climactic word to us. Right off the bat, John desperately wants us to see the divine nature of Jesus Christ. 
He claims the Word is God. And then he continues in verses 1-5 through by pointing out some characteristics of the Word. First, the Word is eternally present. The Word has no beginning. The Word has no end. John begins his gospel with a familiar phrase, in the beginning. These first three words of John echo the first three words of Genesis. Jesus was present at creation and he existed before creation. Just as Genesis 1.1 contains no hint of the creation of God, John 1.1 likewise contains no hint of the creation of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Our oldest daughter, Parker, is going to be five next week, and she loves to ask questions. She just loves to talk in general, but she really loves to ask questions, and many times we don't have good answers for her questions. You know, a good example of this is last summer we were driving around St. Simon's Island, and we were on the back side of the island where, you know, it's a lot of marshland, and Parker's looking out her window, and she says, Mama, what is that? So Lacey looks, and she says, Parker, that's, that's the marsh. Parker has a follow-up question. Well, Mama, what is Marsh? And Lacey stumbles and fumbles through her answer. And and Lacey's defense, she's never been asked in her entire life to explain this ecosystem to another human being. But here she is. And so Lacey pauses for a moment and says, Well, well, Marsh is land, and and sometimes it's wet, and other times it's dry, and and animals live there, and... uh, Yeah. And so, of course, I made fun of Lacey's answer just a little bit. Had a little fun at her expense. But if I can be honest with you, in retrospect, I'm secretly happy that Parker didn't have a follow-up question. Because I don't think I could have improved on Lacey's definition very much. So Parker has this inquisitive mind, and she's always asking us questions, and I'm fairly certain at some point she will ask something along the lines of, where did God come from? And if you get that question from your child or your grandchild, we have the answer right here. We can point them to John chapter 1. We can point them to Genesis chapter 1. And we can say, God didn't come from anywhere. God was always here. He never had a beginning, and he he will never have an end. He was and is and will be forever. So the eternal nature of Jesus sets him apart from other so-called gods. He wasn't created by human hands. He wasn't imagined by human minds. No, the Word is eternal. Second, the Word exists in close relationship with God the Father. Verse 1 continues, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now John spends a fair amount of time writing about the Trinity in his Gospel. In the first verse, he tells us the Word was both with God and He was God. That Jesus enjoyed fellowship with His Father, but He was also distinct from His Father. Also later, as Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure, He goes into great detail about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Throughout his gospel, John keeps hammering home the concept of one God existing in three persons. One essence, three distinct roles. And John does this because if we're honest, the Trinity is a difficult doctrine to fully understand. Last year I was part of an ordination council for a friend who was being ordained for gospel ministry. And during the, the question and answer portion, a deacon 
from his church asked him to explain the Trinity. And then he asked another question and another question. As their conversation continued, it became clear that the deacon was not asking to test the pastoral candidate. He was asking for his own personal edification. After years of being a deacon and years of being in the church, he's still working to come to a full understanding of the Trinity. And so we'll continue to unravel the Trinity as we work through John, but in verse 1 we simply need to see the close relationship between the Son and the Father. That Jesus enjoyed fellowship with his Father at creation. That Jesus consistently went to isolated places to talk to his Father during his earthly ministry. And that Jesus ascended to the throne at the right hand of his Father after his work was complete. And that he will continue to rule by his side forever. All we need to see right now is that the Word always has and always will enjoy a close relationship with God the Father. Third, verse 3, the Word is the creator of the universe. Jesus was not just a present bystander at creation, he was an active participant in creation. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, a few months ago, I made plans with another pastor from a large church in Macon for coffee. And we were firming up our plans and trying to decide where we wanted to go get coffee. He said, why don't you just come to our coffee shop? And I was a little taken aback by that. And I had forgotten they had just done a large renovation. And one of the things they added in their renovation was a new coffee shop out in front of the, the building. And uh, and it was it was just a very interesting experience. While we're in there, the senior pastor came through and he did a little hand wave and then he worked the room a little bit and then when he walked back out to go to his office, his order magically appeared on the counter. It was one of the most boss moves that I've I've ever seen. And so I just had I had a lot of questions and, and so we spent a few minutes talking about the coffee shop before we got into catching up on other things and and he told me about its purposes as an outreach opportunity, meeting space, and, and fundraiser for local and, and international missions. And, and then he started telling me the story of how the coffee shop came into existence. That the senior pastor had been dreaming of a coffee shop on the church campus for years. And that first he worked with trusted allies to craft his vision. And then he sold his vision to the leadership team and staff. And then the congregation that he partnered with the finance team and marketing team and design team to construct a game plan for it. And then he worked closely with an architect to perfect the blueprints. And then once he had laid the groundwork and completed his plans, he watched a construction company turn his dream into reality. And when I heard their story, I couldn't help but draw a direct parallel between the creation of the coffee shop to the creation of the universe. That's just the way my mind works. I don't know why either, but God is the dreamer and Jesus is the developer. The father, like the senior pastor, cast the vision, in this case, for the heavens and the earth. And he laid the groundwork for his redemptive plan to return mankind to a place of acceptance. And then the son is the developer. He put the Father's plans into motion. He created the world. He sustains the world. And He went to the cross to bring peace between a sinful people and a holy God. 
The Father provided the vision, and the Son did the work. The Word created the universe. And then finally, in verses 4 and 5, the Word is light and life. John writes, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John makes several references to life and death and light and darkness in his writings. We'll get to these later, but a couple of the, the seven I am statements of Jesus, those famous I am statements, a couple of them have to do with light and life. In John 11, Jesus claims, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 8, Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came to bring life to the spiritually dead and light to the spiritually darkened. And so if you've, if you've been in church for a number of years, you know, and for me, I've been in church for all three decades of my life. These biblical concepts, these familiar biblical concepts of life and death and light and darkness can just sort of wash over you. They can kind of become white noise for you. But we need to see this with fresh eyes today. We need to read John's claims as first century Jews would have read them. John is saying, when he says that Jesus is life and Jesus is light, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the Savior from Genesis 3 who will be born of the seed of a woman to crush the seed of the serpent. That Jesus is the judge from Psalm 2 who will end all injustice and rebellion. That Jesus is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 who will be punished and killed though he was perfectly righteous. That Jesus is the king from Daniel 7 who will rule over a universal kingdom with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Jesus can offer us life and light. He is the promised Messiah who overcame death and darkness. And he invites us invites us to experience abundant life through Him. But life in Christ is not a one-time transaction. He doesn't show up and drop a package on your front porch like a, like a UPS driver. It's not a situation where we believe, we say a prayer, we walk the aisle, and He just drops the box on our doorstep and says, here you go, here's your salvation. All right, I'll see you in heaven one day. Have a good life. No. No. Life in Christ is not a one-time transaction. It's an everlasting adoption. Think about when a young boy is adopted into a new family. His adoption may be sealed by an official government document. But that official government document is just going to end up in a drawer somewhere. It's just going to end up in a filing cabinet. His adoption is not sealed by a piece of paper. His adoption is sealed by his relationship with his new family. As they sleep in the same house, as they eat meals together, as they exchange Christmas gifts, as they share the flu with one another, as they cry together when grandma dies, they become family. Adoption is not a one-time transaction. It's an endless relationship. Life in Christ involves walking into a deeper and deeper relationship with Him forever. So then we get to verse 6. When we get to verse 6, we see John change course a little bit. 
he appears to make an abrupt shift to include John the Baptist in the story. You know, if we were to skip over verses 6 through 8, verse 5 sort of flows perfectly into verse 9. Verses 6 through 8 seem to be out of place, but John the author throws John the Baptist into the story to show us how we should respond to Jesus. So picking back up in verse 6, John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When I was in seminary, one of my professors used to say, a very basic approach to reading scripture is asking ourselves two questions. What does the passage say about God? And what does the passage say about us? And so the first five verses answer the first question. What does the passage say about God? It says Jesus is the Word, and that the Word is God, the Word is the author of creation of salvation, the Word is the light of the world. And then verses 6 through 13 say two things about us. They answer the second question. First, it says that we are born blind to the light. And second, it says if we have the light, we need to show others the light. So John the Baptist was sent from God to bear witness to the light. So he comes on the scene to deliver a message. And and in a sense, John is called into the court of public opinion to provide testimony about Jesus. He's called to the witness stand to give information about Jesus and everyone who sits under the sound of his voice has to make their own personal decision about Jesus. So John's on the stand to testify about the light. And it seems really silly if you think about it for John to have to give testimony on behalf of of light. I mean, could you imagine having to explain the benefits of sunlight or a lamp in a dark room or headlights on a dark road to someone? You know, we can easily see the importance of light in our lives. We don't need to be told about it. So why does John have to tell people about Jesus? Well, one commentator explains it this way. He says, when the sun is shining with all its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who needs to be told it's shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read God sent John to bear witness to the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. That Jesus came as the light, but the world was blind and could not see it. The one who created the world was in the world, yet the world did not recognize him. Jesus made their eyes, but they refused to see his glory. Jesus made their ears, but they refused to hear his message. Jesus made their heads, but they refused to bow them before him. Jesus came to them, but they did not receive them. 
when John started talking about Jesus, he heard some no's. He heard some yeses. He had some that he baptized in the Jordan, many that he baptized in the Jordan, but he also heard no's. But no matter the result, John kept pointing to the light because of the promise of God highlighted in 12 and 13. You know, if you ended in verse 11, we'd have kind of a dark cloud over to lunch as we leave this place today. But praise God for verses 12 and 13, where John continues and says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the promise of the gospel. When we receive Jesus by trusting in Him as Savior and submitting to Him as Lord, we become children of God. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins are now adopted into God's family. And we officially take our seat at God's table. Our life changes forever. We don't have to fear death because we know the Word made a way for us. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because we know the Word is eternal. We don't need to be concerned about our needs being met because we know the Word is the creator and sustainer of all things. We don't need to worry about our 401k or our retirement plan because we know the Word established an inheritance for us in the heavenly realm. This is where Jesus stands apart. Every other worldview sees something broken. Every other worldview calls for healing, calls for improvement. Every other worldview recognizes human error as keeping us from nirvana or enlightenment or paradise or peace or salvation. But every other worldview points to a list of rules and regulations or practices to combat our human nature. Every other worldview puts the responsibility back on us, except for one. Unlike his counterparts, Jesus Christ doesn't point to a potentially better way. He says, I am the better way. I am the solution. I am the answer. I am the one who can move you past your broken past and who can move you out of habitual religious practices, and who can move you closer to God's design for your life. I am the better way. David Platt tells a story in one of his books about a trip to Indonesia. He was talking to a Hindu leader and a Muslim leader, and they're having a dialogue together, and they're talking about how All their religions have different paths that lead us to spiritual invitement, that lead us eventually to God. And and they're telling David Platt that, you know, we respect your path and you should respect our path and we'll all go our different ways and together we're one and, you know, we'll end up in the same place one day. That we're all different rivers leading to the same ocean. And David Platt listened to him for a while and then he said, well, let me see if I understand what you're saying. It's almost like you picture God at the top of a mountain. And we're all at the bottom of the mountain. And I may take this path up, and you may take that path over there, and you may take that path over there, but in the end, no matter which way we go, we're all going to end up in the same place. 
and they had these huge smiles creep across their face because they believed he finally understood what they were saying. And they said, that's exactly what we're saying. That's the way it is. And he says, well, let me ask you another question. If that's the way it is, what if God at the top of the mountain decided he was going to make his way down to the bottom of the mountain to you? And then he came to bring us up the mountain himself. And they said, well, that, that would be wonderful. That would be amazing. And David Platt said, that's exactly what the God of the Bible did for us when he sent his son, Jesus. The word did the work for us. The word went to the cross in our place. The word came to be light in the darkness to move us from death to life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. Lord, I, I, I pray today that everyone under the sound of my voice is currently living in the light. That everyone under the sound of my voice is living an abundant life through Jesus Christ. And Lord, if they're not, Lord, I just pray that you would work in their hearts today. And Father, for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that we could be faithful witnesses like John the Baptist. Lord, in a, in a couple weeks, when we get into his testimony later in this chapter, we're going we're gonna to talk about how incredible this man was, this man that Jesus will one day call the greatest man who ever lived. Lord, can we be faithful witnesses like him? And Lord, we pray that, that we are so that we can see men, women, and children in Lowndes County who are currently living in the darkness move from death to life. Father, we continue to lift up your Son because we know that when we do, he will draw people to himself. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.